Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on moviehousememories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. to Movie House Concessions on the MHN Podcast Network, where each episode we pull a random film from the display case to see if it tastes as fresh as the day it was released. I'm Patrick. And I am Chad. And for today's episode, we are reviewing The Ice Storm, directed by Ang Lee and starring Kevin Klein, Joan Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Tobey Maguire, Christina Ricci, and Elijah Wood, and a little bit of Katie Holmes. But before we get into our review of this film, Chad, you have a summary for us? Uh, yes, I do. Let's see what I can do with this. During Thanksgiving week 1973, two Connecticut-based families have their lives and families tested by events that pose the question, is there always something to be thankful for? First, we have the Hood family. The Hoods are your atypical American family, consisting of the full-of-shit patriarch, Ben Hood, his homemaker wife, Elena, their drug and comic book addicted son, Paul, and their free-spirited daughter, Wendy. Ben, who is full of philosophy but short of true human emotions, is unfulfilled by his career and marriage, so he seeks out the meaning of life and sexual satisfaction from an affair with his neighbor, Janie Carver. Elena, who can't seem to find any purpose in her life, struggles with the knowledge that Ben is having an affair and is envious of her free-spirited children. Elena seeks spiritual guidance from a progressive minister, but struggles with what lines she and this man of God should cross spiritually and physically. Paul comes home from boarding school, primarily to spend time with the family and eat a Thanksgiving meal, but leaves as soon as he can to spend time in New York City with his beautiful classmate, Libets Casey. And yes, her name is Libets. <laughs> Paul's only true obstacles in life appear to be his virginity and his roommate, Francis Davenport, who purposely has sex with every girl Paul crushes on. For example, when Paul goes to visit Libets for a post-holiday fiesta, he arrives to find Francis at Libets's house, partaking in a variety of alcohol and pharmaceuticals, much to Paul's annoyance. But more on that later on. Wendy, a free-spirited 14-year-old, spends her free time falling and being outraged by President Richard Nixon's Watergate scandal. To re relieve some stress, Wendy tests the sexual inhibitions of her neighbors, Mikey and Sandy Carver. Wendy, who accepts and appreciates the love of her father and brother, struggles to understand that physical love and emotional love can be exclusive of each other. Then we have the Carver family, who live a short walk away from the Hoods. The Carvers are another family full of dysfunction, but one with a darker cloud over their heads. Janie Carver is a strong-willed housewife who is having an affair with Ben Hood, while her husband, Jim, is constantly traveling for business. Janie works diligently to be a loving and caring mother to her sons, Mikey and Sandy, but struggles to keep their wild sides and experimentation in check. 
Mikey, the older of the two boys, is extremely spiritual and fills uh, one with nature. He is very close with Wendy Hood, who he shares romantic makeout sessions and attempted sexual encounters with. Meanwhile, Sandy, the youngest carver, appears to be a loving, caring boy, but he spends his free time blowing up toys with cherry bombs, killing his mother's plants with leather whips, and being used as one of Wendy's anatomy dolls. The man who deeply loves all three of these unique individuals is the foam peanut king of Connecticut, Jim Carver. Jim is a very successful businessman who, as we said earlier, spends most of his time traveling. However, Jim's rudimentary approach to caring for his family and drive for business success has brought him to a point where Janie doesn't hesitate to sleep around and his sons don't even know when he's away on a business trip. Long before Black Friday was a major shopping day in the United States, the Hood and Carver families had their lives changed forever by their post-Thanksgiving festivities and an extraordinary ice storm. Ben and Elena, who are now openly at odds over Ben's deceitfulness and adultery, attend a neighborhood cocktail party that turns out to be a key party. During this free-spirited event, the ladies randomly pick out their sexual partner for the night by pulling a set of car keys from a glass bowl. The owner of the respective keys announces who he is, and the couples retreat to a bedroom for a night of passion. This roaring event sets up a number of scenarios where an intoxicated Ben is distraught by who Janie is going to be having sex with, while Elena is angered by Ben's overt concern about who Janie is going to be having sex with. And to make matters even more interesting, Jim sits and watches his wife Janie voluntarily walk off to a bedroom with the owner of the key she pulled from the bowl. While a humiliated Ben Hood is passed out in a nearby bathroom, the last duo to be paired up, Jim Carver and Elena Hood, decide to escape the party house, but ultimately choose to have a quickie in Jim's car in the middle of an ice storm. Soon after, the ice-covered roads send Jim's car crashing into the nearby woods. Jim and Elena are able to find safety and shelter at the Carver home, but their night isn't over just yet. While all of the parents are off playing sex games, Wendy goes to the Carver's house to see Mikey, but learns he has left to go play in the rain and experience the ice storm. Wendy and Sandy turn their attentions towards exploring each other's bodies, have a few sips of vodka, then get naked for each other. The youngsters attempt to have sex, but the booze causes them to fall asleep in each other's arms instead. At the same time, Wendy's brother Paul finds some high-grade pharmaceuticals in Libitz's medicine cabinet and uses them to put his roommate to sleep for the night. However, Libitz pops one of the pills and passes out face-first in Paul's crotch. Instead of taking advantage of the young lady, Paul hops back on the train to Connecticut. The transport gets stuck midway in the middle of the ice storm, but ultimately gets moving. And speaking of the dangerous ice storm, young Mikey finds adventure after adventure while exploring nature in the ice-covered Connecticut terrains. But the harsh elements are more dangerous than Mikey is able to handle when he is electrocuted by a downed power line. Ben, who has miraculously sobered up just enough to drive home in the deadly ice storm, finds Mikey's body lying in the middle of the road and elects to take him back to the Carver's house. 
There, Ben, Elena, and Wendy Hood are reunited to watch a heartbroken Jim Carver attempt to resuscitate his son's dead body. The Hoods gracefully exit the Carver house to pick up Paul from the train station. Once all of the Hoods are all back together, safe and sound, Ben finally cracks, overwhelmed by his emotions, and sobs uncontrollably knowing that the events during the ice storm has changed their lives forever. The end. A happy little Thanksgiving film. Ah, God bless every one of us. Just reminds me of my old days of Thanksgiving, too. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The Ice Storm, uh, numbers on Ice Storm, released on September 27th, 1997, the same week as The Peacemaker with George Clooney and Nicole Kidman, The Edge with Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin, and Soul Food, the same month as in and out uh, literally a week after in and out was released. So a Kevin Klein month, if you will, the full Monty LA confidential fire down below with Steven Seagal and the game with Michael Douglas made on a budget of $18 million. It grossed only just over $8 million. It was the 126th highest grossing film of 1997 behind such classics as Yuli's gold Turbo, a Power Rangers movie, and A Simple Wish, and right in front of such films as A Thousand Acres, Sprung, and Wild America, was nominated for no Academy Awards, and appears on no American Film Institute lists. Uh, Sigourney Weaver, however, was nominated for a, a Golden Globe for Best Performance of an Actress in a Supporting Role. However, she lost to Kim Basinger for L.A. Confidential. Gene Siskel named it the best film of 1997 at around the time of its release. And it is also included in the novel, uh, the book, sorry, it is also included in the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die. Rotten Tomatoes has it at 85% critics and 82% audience. So that is the numbers on the ice storm. All right. Well, Chad, you asked to review this initially for Criterion. We're doing kind of the second half of this to kind of talk about the actual film itself. What about this film? Why why this film? I love movies with incredible actors and actresses in an ensemble cast. And when I first caught this movie on cable, I see Kevin Klein and Joan Allen, who those two, I love in anything they do, even if it's a bad movie i'll watch those two and then i start seeing people i know like jamie sheridan and sigourney weaver and i think i may have known who katie holmes was at the time i definitely knew who toby mcguire was but i just started seeing these people i recognize so i start following the movie and it probably halfway through and so i get to see the latter half and then i get to getting to the part where i get paul and libets and his roommate um, doing drugs in the New York house. And then I get to the key party and then I get to Elijah Wood enjoying the ice storm and all of these freaky occurrences that I have never seen on screen before. It just fascinated me. So I sat there enthralled with the movie until the end, the ugly, bitter end. And I went to see when it was on next. I recorded it and I've probably watched this one about once or twice every two to three years just because I love this cast. I love this story. It is so off the wall. It is unusual. I know it's sad in the end, but it is a great examination of American families and just how America was operating at that point in time. 
Now, now, now it's interesting you say that because I, I generally like ensemble casts, especially coming out of the 90s when you had films like Pulp Fiction and Usual Suspects, uh, you know, the very much ensemble pieces with a variety of different actors uh, playing off each other pretty well. I mm-hmm. remember seeing this in 97 on VHS, and I made this comment on, on the Criterion Review when we reviewed this a few months ago that I saw it and, and basically forgot it. I didn't dislike it. I just probably more than anything else, I was kind of probably just okay it is what it is and it was it was a little boring and moved on and i never watched it again until we watched it for criterion and then when i watched it i was really really more moved and impressed by the acting performances of all the cast but not even realizing that when i watched it in 97 i didn't know who toby mcguire was i didn't know who you know elijah wood is i mean i probably saw elijah i remember elijah wood in north but Mm-hmm. You know, and the war with Kevin Costner, but he wasn't like, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't Lord of the Rings, Elijah Wood yet. No. <laughs> so, and, you know, so he was just, you know, a kid actor and to, and, or, and I certainly didn't know Katie Holmes at all. And it was really interesting to, you know, like, oh, wow, I didn't know they were in this film. Oh, I didn't know they were in this film either. I didn't recall the comic book aspect of it, which obviously anything with a comic book speaks to me with my background. Uh, and you know, the, this kind of relation to the family being, uh, the, 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 compared to the drama that was in the, the, that at that time, a very recent fantastic four issue. And it was like, wow, I'm really, you know, I was really enthralled with the story and it had been so long that I didn't even remember Elijah Wood's death <laughs> at all. I, I was, I, I, don't get me wrong. I knew he was going to die. <laughs> When he was out running around, I'm like, something tragic is going to happen to him. I thought he was going to fall off the diving board. That's <laughs> what I thought was going to happen. And he'd freeze to death, you know. And then when he was sliding down the road, I'm like, oh, he's going to get hit by a car by Kevin Klein, uh, you know. And, I, and it had been so long, I just it just slipped my mind. And then when it when I saw the dr- dangling electrical power line, I'm like, oh yeah, now I remember. But <laughs> but but. Made Ang Lee want to film the, or shoot this? Yeah, movie, no, so. exactly. And, and, but it was a real. I mean, it was an acting tour de force, and there was a lot of outstanding performances across the board by everyone. Katie Holmes is not a good actress at all, <laughs> not in the slightest. I mean, she's gorgeous to look at, but she's not a talented actress. And she did a good job in what she had to do in this. I mean, she plays drunk, and I don't. She's not stupid, but you know, drunken stone pretty well, you know, she should, she'd be, she should be in most, you know, like marijuana movies, I guess. But anytime you need someone to dive into a man's crotch, you call Katie Holmes. <laughs> hey, well, you said it. I did not, <laughs> but I, I thought it was a really, really good performance. And having watched kind of the criterion a- aspect of it, I had a much deeper appreciation to the artistry that they went into making this film. You know, I didn't even realize it was Ang Lee. Now, Ang Lee is not the Ang Lee he was when he made this film. When he made this film, he he had not made Hulk or uh, Gemini Man. <laughs> you know, he hadn't even made Crouching Tiger yet. No, he? he hadn't made Crouching Tiger yet. That's that's like four years away. And he, I mean, he is he he. And I still think he's a very very talented actor who very much does not want to repeat himself by staying within a certain type of film, but this is very much in his wheelhouse of what I knew him for at the time, but still, you know, you know, a world away from sense and sensibility. 
Uh, mm-hmm. You know, although he'll love to make the comparison that it's still a period drama with a lot of uh, costumes, it, it was a very much an American film and telling an American tale and, uh, tale and an adaptation of a novel that I think a lot of people thought would ha- have difficulty being adapted into an interesting film. But it is it is a really good film. Yes. Yeah. And I it's one of those that the more I've watched over the years, the more I think that audiences just didn't know what they were getting in themselves into. I know on the criterion that Angley and Mr. Seamus uh, talk about this was the biggest disaster in marketing research testing that they've ever encountered uh, when making a film. So this was probably never going to be a box office hit, but it was definitely going to be a home video and cable hit down the road. Now you're talking about the acting performances we've, sat here and just gushed over everybody in the film is who do you think stands out though? Who, I mean, who now looking at it or maybe even at its time, who did you so go? Wow. That's amazing. At the time. I mean, I always will love Kevin Klein and again, watching it for this podcast. And when we did the criterion podcast, watching him in a little bit more detail, uh, knowing more about who his character was supposed to be, he just knocks this one out of the ballpark. It, watching him masquerade who his character uh, is supposed to be. I mean, all the little nuances that he's trying to hide from his wife and how he's trying to hide his adultery and his illicit affair with uh, Sigourney Weaver's character. Um, just the lies and the cover-ups and everything and just being a complete poser. He does it perfectly. And then Joan Allen on the flip side, being his wife and how she's holding back everything that she's truly feeling. You can see it in her face and in her body until she ultimately does decide to do something either for herself or against uh, his Kevin's Ben character. Um, I think those two still stand out amongst everybody else. But then Sigourney Weaver This is a totally different role for her. I think she does it very, very well. You can see her being a cold-hearted bitch who's in a marriage that she doesn't really want to be in, but she doesn't want to abandon her sons, who she really loves, even though they're messed up. And then Christina Ricci is a special talent in and of herself. She uh, had to do some extraordinary stuff to portray a 14-year-old girl who is exploring her body, exploring sexuality, exploring everything in a free-spirited manner, but also trying to not be her parents in the process and seeing their mistakes and trying to learn from them while being influenced by the White House Watergate scandal. I mean, (laughs) what more can you ask from this young lady? You know, it's interesting you say that. Obviously, I think at the time, the, the, the actors that drew me to this were probably Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver, the two that uh-huh. I knew the best, uh, having just done Dave a few years ago or a few years prior to this together. Uh, you know, Joan Allen, you know, I was trying to think if this was probably one of my first films that I saw her. And I mean, she did a lot of great films, you know, in a short period of time. And you know, and I know going into the late nineties and early two thousands, she received a couple Academy Award nominations. I, I think of like the the Contender. I thought was a really really great film. I, she, you know, she was in Nixon. I mean, she, I mean which I, I think came out prior to this, so that's probably where I first saw her for. 
uh, you know, as far as like acting performances, I think in the time I was probably most impressed with Christina Ricci because what I knew her for prior to this was Adam's family or mermaids. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that, you know, that she was very much a child actor and this is kind of her first kind of grown up role or the first one I saw. But now in hindsight, it's very much the performance that I like. I really appreciate kind of the nuance of uh, is Joan Allen's performance is that she's very much that everything is hiding below the surface. And this this kind of the, the trying to find out where she is, what what she wants to do and who she is in this world and kind of being pigeonholed, yet being aware of all these things around her. And as everything, like her children are changing and they're evolving, you know, they're kind of reckless and they're free spirited. And even to a certain respect, her husband's free spirited because obviously the affair and she feels like grounded, but she has these moments of temptation, the the shoplifting and stuff like that, riding the bike like her daughter does, you know, that trying to be, as you said, kind of be her kids. I, I thought it was a really nuanced performance that I really, really enjoyed this time. Uh, yeah, and I mean, even the small things that Toby Maguire brings to this with his narration and just his visuals and interpretation of his parents, David Crumholtz um, as his uh, roommate and what little he does, he's a smug jackass and he brings it across <laughs> very well. And I'm always going to love Allison Jenny and anything that yes. she does in her little three minutes that she's in it. She sells the key party for what the key party needs to be sold as. And I don't know if anybody else could have sold it the way she did it. No, I agree with you on that. I forgot about her and it as, you know, very much a supporting role, but then you also had, um, uh, the, the guy I'm blanking on his name right now, but it's Henry and I'm forgetting. Yeah. I I'm trying to, I'm forgetting myself. He's the God. He's the, the boss in mission impossible one and yeah. he's the and he's the bad guy he's one of the bad guys in clear and present danger but i you know he had a, a short burst of films in the night in, in the mid 90s where he played an asshole and he plays an asshole in this film uh but i really liked his his performances you know kind of this foil for kevin klein somebody almost an instigator if you will of hey you know wink wink nod nod uh, you know everybody's kind of cheating type of thing yeah, Henry Zerny is who you're saying. Zerny, of. thank you. He's going to be in the new uh, Mission Impossible film, which by the time this comes out probably has already been released. But he's <laughs> he's returning to the Mission Impossible series. I'm looking forward to that. All right. Uh, what else do you want to talk about this film? What am I missing? Oh, um, just I'm very big uh, when I see this movie on all of the artistic approaches to filming this movie. Ang Lee does a great job of shooting things to make it very real, uh, not being very, very cartoonish. He makes you feel like everything you're looking at is just right outside your front door, from uh, the trees to the roads, the streets, uh, stop signs, the, the shops, the trains, Everything that he shoots, uh, there's a special crane shot in this movie where Elijah Wood and Christina Ricci share a kiss at the bottom of a empty swimming pool. And it's filled with leaves because it's supposed to be November, naturally. And it's so artistically done. He approaches every movie he does with such grace and such detail 
when he's shooting things that it's just amazing. I mean, if you ever watch Crouch, something like Crouching Tiger or um, Brokeback Mountain or something where he shoots these things, these nature scenes, he does such a spectacular job of making it very artistic. It, no, Angley is a very, as much as he's known for dramas and kind of getting great acting performances, he's still a very visual du- uh, director and he creates a beautiful landscape to show his film on, you know, in the background or even in his location shooting. I mean, this, this, this was no different. I mean, even though these are just supposed to be, you know, single family homes in the 1970s it's you know the the woodsy landscape and the fall season i mean it's just beautiful and you know especially with these the windows which you know obviously you can get into symbolism there and the fact that they're living in glass houses you know (laughs) very much so that uh, everything is just all, all in the open for everyone to see and no one is being fooled by anything right and i'm just I, I'm also amazed by the man. They joke about it in the commentary on the Criterion Edition where how does a Chinese man make a movie about American lifestyle and American families? And he does it in such a gr- great way. Originally, this was pitched as a dark comedy, but he makes it a very depressing but yet straightforward commentary on the American family, probably from the 70s and probably even as – you could look at him today in some way, shape, or form. But he just is able to take the material from anything he does and try to make it the best he can. And he just does a masterful job with the material. And I give him all the props in the world for this movie specifically because you only get to spend a handful of days with these characters and you feel like you really do know who they are in the moment in time and where they're coming from and where they're eventually going to go after the events of this movie have taken place. What did you think of the uh, music in this film specifically? Oh, loved it. I've always said one of the great things about this movie is the Native American flute uh, that they use. I always thought at first it was Zamfir's pan flute, but I was wrong about that. Um, The Native American flute that they use to transition from scene to scene a lot Uh, is beautiful and it's very elegant and very simple and they don't use a whole lot of other type of music other than this to transition from the scenes but it makes it feel homey and uh, family oriented but then what's also cool is the last I'll probably say I don't know 10 to 15 minutes in a way there's no dialogue in this movie for the most part And then it's all the music that they use. And it is so well done that you know what everybody's thinking. You know what everybody's feeling. You have a tragic event that happens and you don't need the dialogue. You just have the music and the actors and actresses presenting their emotions. And it is so well done. As far as the music, I thought the music created a lot of atmosphere to it. And although I can't say I'm going to run out and buy the soundtrack (laughs) and listen to that music, it it does complement the film that's on the screen. But that was one thing I was going to discuss was the lack of dialogue in, what, the last 10 minutes? Yeah, yeah, roughly. I'm thinking the last line of dialogue is when Joan Allen and Sigourney Weaver's husband come back and 
he says like the light switches over there or something like that. And, and I can't recall a line of dialogue afterwards. Cause after that, Kevin Klein's been breaks down in the car. I think Joan Allen says something to him, but between what you're speaking of and that final moment, there's almost no dialogue for, I like to say 10 to 15 minutes. Correct. I mean, it's left to the audience's uh, interpretation of what's going on. And you kind of brought up in the summary, like, uh, you know, the, the beginning of the film is the end of the film. You're, re- you're reliving that scene. And the scene as it's portrayed in the beginning is a family welcoming back a, 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 their son from school as he comes back into town. That's almost as a way it's the impressions of it. And then once you see the entire film, entire film, that that moment is so drastically different by the end of the film and how you're interpreting that and what what happens next out of that car, <laughs> you know, like right. what, what happens when they get home? Because as you as you stated in the summary, and I think it's a very they're forever changed. I mean, they are none of them are going to be the same after you know after the night that they have just had. And, you know, one of the questions I have is what do you think happens? I mean, where, where do you think to these, these characters afterwards? Yeah. And I, because we've reviewed this for the criterion, we sort of know what the author of the book was saying about the characters from that point of view. So I sort of had a little bit of inkling, but from my interpretation, which I love about movies when they're ambiguous at the end, I still think. Everybody finally did what they needed to do, which is just split up the parents. I mean, the hoods and the carvers and go their separate ways because they're just not good together. Uh, They're going to be happier. It's a changing time. It's not the 50s where everybody stays together because they feel like they need to. I think the women in this movie are going to finally stand up against their husbands who they don't love anymore. And they're going to go and try to restart their lives. Having a child die needlessly uh, by careless parents who are at a key party, that's going to definitely affect them. And I think everybody is just going to have to go their separate ways and learn from this. The kids are going to learn to not be as carefree and free spirited as they are. They're going to have more caution uh, as they approach adulthood. But uh, yeah, that's the way I just see everybody going from this point forward, because these are tragic, tragic events that took place and did change everybody. It had to. Well, and, and I agree with you. I think the, without a doubt, the Carver family is destroyed. I mean, mm-hmm. that the affair is out in the open and now both, you know, infidelity is on both sides after what the father does with uh, Joan Allen and the loss of a child. It's, it's hard to imagine any family, uh, any, you know, a married couple overcoming that, uh, especially when, their, uh, how do I put this? They're focusing on their individual needs and not what their kids are, especially on a night such as this is what potentially leads to Elijah Wood running out unsupervised and then getting killed, you know, in, in a horrible accident. It's no one's fault, but that the fact that they weren't there, neither one of them were there at that moment. They could have potentially prevented that uh, because they had to go do what this needed to be need to be done. And I agree with you coming out of the the 1960s, early 1970s, that this a, a expectation is, you know, you'll remain married. And that's why they're all cheating on, you know, each other is because, you know, we stay married, but there's still there's still a lot of infidelity going on. But I think they they'll move on to 
the divorce, you know, very much a divorce shortly thereafter this, the hoods is something different. You know, I, I don't know that I think that I think that they potentially could come out of this because they are all so fractured people, you know, with the exception of Toby Maguire, you know, he, he seems to, he seems to be pretty put together and he seems to have an understanding of who his parents are, but that maybe it's the kick in the, in their complacency to, to not worry about their own needs for a period of time that allows them to focus on their own kids. So I, I think the hoods is a little more uncertain. The one part of the hoods that I officially like, um, or an interpretation I really, really like is how he talks about the fantastic four. They're essentially saying they're stronger. They're all individuals, but they're stronger together as the family unit. And I think that's the only grace that they have is if they can come together as that group of four individuals and work strong together, I think they could stay together. But that's the only way they would have to start forgiving each other for their sins and all of that and work actually talk and work through it and not be imposters towards each other. That would be the only thing that could save that family to me, even though I think the kids are very intelligent and astute about things. I just think the parents would have a hard time staying together. You know, it's interesting you bring up the the comparison to Fantastic Four because that lineup, you know, specifically, if if you even look historically, and not even back to 1973, but historically throughout the entire run of that comic series, is there have been periods of time where an individual member and sometimes a couple of members have been replaced by someone else as a member of the Fantastic Four, but it always comes back to the same four is that uh-huh. they are that that lineup has stayed more consistent than any other uh super team in the Marvel universe and is probably uh, it, you know they reference as well they are family you know and say well Ben's not <laughs> but everybody else is related eventually but i i think that's a, a good a good connection and a good lead to that's probably why they'll end up staying together is because their family and, and they, they can comp- even the authors comparing them to the fantastic four. Yep. All right. After all said and done on a scale to one to five, do you consider this a bad one or would you give this one a high five? Um, I'm probably telegraphed this one already, but this is a high five. As I have said before, this is probably one of the finest movies made in the 1990s. It's actually one of the most underappreciated movies of the 1990s. And I highly recommend anybody who hasn't seen it to give it a try, if not once, but twice, just so you can appreciate all the aspects of this movie. It does take a couple viewings, probably two, like Patrick, to really yes. appreciate everything. So... I love it. I think everyone in the cast is great. I think the visuals are great. I think the music is great. I watch it at least once every year or two just so I can re-examine it and re-appreciate it. And I love this one so much. All right. Well, I will agree with Chad in that aspect that this is probably one you need to see more than once. Uh, I had only seen it once. Now I've seen it. Actually, I've seen it a second and a third time because I watched the commentary for Criterion. It is a really, really underappreciated film for the 90s, that this was a a pretty outstanding uh, film with great performances from a bevy of actors and actresses. 
and a, a director that was at probably the top of his game. And I feel bad that I didn't appreciate this in its time. I very much enjoyed watching the film. I'm not going to go as high as five. That's a that's pretty high praise there. I'm definitely going to go four, maybe even go as high as four and a half. But uh, it, it was a really, really good film. I would highly recommend anybody to watch it. It's one that I really enjoyed watching this time. And uh, I will definitely be keeping it as part of my Criterion collection going forward. Uh, I'm not going to be trading off this disc to anyone. All right, well, that's it for our review of The Ice Storm. Please let us know what you think of the film in the comment section on our website. And for our listeners over on moviehousememories.com, please rate it from one to five stars on that page as well. If you've enjoyed today's review, please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, the MHN Podcast Network, where we have many, many more films from yesterday, today, and beyond. Well, that is it for this review. Until next time, I'm Patrick. I'm Chad. And this concession stand is now closed. podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The song Rock On Brudda is brought to you by Marwan Nimra at natintine.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Movie House Concessions, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. <laughs>